Welcome to Why Though. We're your hosts, Tiffany Bloom and Ashley Abercrombie. We land somewhere in between Mother Teresa and Biggie Smalls, and we're just wondering, why though? We all have questions, from our existential crisis curiosities to our, hey girl, why your eyebrows look so good though? And we want to tackle all of those questions with you. Welcome back to Why Though. We are so pumped you are tuned in today because today you get a little snack, a little snack, 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 and it is going to taste <laughs> so good. And it's just an amuse-bouche, if you will, of all that's to come on Ashley's upcoming book. Ashley, are you so excited about your book? I am beside myself with excitement and nerves. <laughs> mm. Now, listeners, we've already filled you in a little bit that Ashley had a book coming out in October, but today is the day where you get to hear chapter one. That's right, chapter one for Freezy. She is going to read it to, uh, to you. And so it is going to be such an encouragement to you. I know I've already read it and I cannot wait to hear it all over again mm-hmm. because it will be the encouragement you need. So settle in or if you're in traffic or you're doing the dishes or you're on a run, wherever you may be, I hope you will enjoy Rise of the Truth Teller. Ashley, take it away. Chapter one, the truth about your past, taking off the mask because my story matters. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Maya Angelou, I know why the cage bird sings. The first time I heard another woman tell her story, I clutched my heart and gasped. Could this be true? Are these things we actually talk about? Abuse, shame, failure, all the messes we make and the struggles we go through. Could there be an honest life on the other side of it all? I remember thinking if she's so free to share this, then maybe it's possible for me to be free as well. She gave me hope that the gap between who I was and who I was pretending to be could finally start closing. The power of her story helped me take my first steps toward freedom. She taught me a truth that day my story matters. She went first, and that gift of going second is precious to me. The wisdom I've gleaned from walking alongside people who got the thing I wanted, or who walked through hell and back with me at their side, well, you can't put a price on that. I have witnessed courage in the darkest corners of another's life, faith when there was no tangible evidence to back belief, strange beauty found in guttural cries of sorrow, in eyes intense with rage, in hands and hearts choosing to give in the worst of circumstances, and exceeding joy as friends wrote a book, overcame an addiction, or quit something that needed to be quit. Lord knows I have cheered them on, wept by their side, believed, prayed, and hoped for their dream as if the dream were mine. And I'd be lying if I told you that I hadn't also ached inside with longing, battled jealousy, felt out of place, and wondered when my time would come, and if I'd only ever watch others get the thing I want. Can you believe how hard it is to be human? Have you ever really thought about it? The stress of life, the annoying little things, like my butt shifting farther south the closer I get to 40. What is happening? The relational challenges, literally locking myself in a bathroom to keep from losing it with my child and also a coworker. The financial struggles, why do I have to pay bills instead of get massages? The loss and the grief. Nothing about it is easy, and that's why sharing our lives, our memories, our dreams, and our pain is critical to our sanity and survival. Our stories matter. 
Many of us suffer in silence and wonder if we are alone in our pain. The truth about our past has the power to heal. When we are the first to share, the first to be vulnerable, the first to bravely face and overcome abuse, failure, shame, or addiction, or the first to forgive, dream again, or be a true friend, it helps us realize that we are not alone and that we are not crazy. When another person we love and respect normalizes our lived experiences and our confusing emotions, we exhale. We decide we're going to be okay and that we just might make it through this, whatever this is. We're encouraged and inspired to respond. And maybe someday we'll even be moved to do the same for another, to go first. I've told many of my stories, sometimes as a response and sometimes as a risk, but it's nearly always been worth it, except for one time on a Christian television show. I'll tell you about that later. But for now, if you've never had a sister go first, may I go first with you? Because I believe you've got the makings of a truth teller. I believe you've got some stories to tell, some hard-earned wisdom we need. So here we go. My story. I found out I was pregnant the first time in a Texaco gas station bathroom. It was close to midnight in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I had recently attended a local university. I was back visiting for a long weekend after losing my full-ride academic scholarship. I no longer had an apartment in the city where I had lived for my first two years out of high school. Instead, I had moved home and gotten a job at Sagebrush Steakhouse in Reedsville. One day I noticed my work jeans felt snug at the waist and hips. I went to the restroom and sure enough, the lower part of my tummy seemed firm and round. I hadn't thrown up in a while. Now that I was back home without academic pressure to perform hanging over my head and with a move to Los Angeles on the horizon, I seemed to be getting better. I was taking regular Pilates classes and eating the best I could in a small town to curb my desire to binge and purge. So my jeans fitting tight wasn't because of the usual swell of an eating disorder. By the time I made the two-hour drive to Raleigh that weekend, my equilibrium felt off and I was nauseous. So after spending some time with friends, I went to a gas station and bought a pregnancy test. I felt too afraid to call a friend and too ashamed to take the test in someone's home. I locked the gas station's only bathroom, peed on the stick, and placed it on the back of the toilet. I crouched down in the corner and started to pray. Please, God, please. I can't be pregnant. I've gone through so much and I'm two weeks away from starting over. Please, please, God, don't let me be pregnant. With my gut in my throat and tears streaming down my face, I took the long walk to the test. Positive. I had dreamed my whole life about becoming a mother. Maybe I'd bake something to let my husband know, or get one of those fancy silver something or others from Tiffany's, make dinner and have it wrapped on his place setting. We'd celebrate together in our home and start talking nursery colors and names. It would be one of the happiest moments of my life. This was among the most painful. I was born in Eden, North Carolina, at the only hospital in town. It was a beautiful beginning place, small enough to know everybody and to rarely know anyone at all. We all had secrets because that is what humans keep. And as sweet as my childhood was, perhaps the skill I retained best was masking my pain. I don't fully understand why I felt compelled to hide, to retreat deep inside myself, to swallow every hurt and wound and keep myself from burdening others. But I did. I don't have anyone to blame. Still, we are all... Still, we all make choices based on our context, on what has shaped and informed us, and until we know different, we do the best we can with what we have. I don't know if it's like this everywhere, but in the South, we are raised to tell the truth, and most of the time, that means telling it like it is about other people. That girl is homely. Honey, he is mean as a rattlesnake. I told her he's a low-down, dirty scoundrel, and he's dumb as a brick, too, but she don't listen. Well, you know she ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. That teacher is busier than a one-armed wallpaper hanger. She makes me a nervous wreck. There's a small exchange, and it often starts with, well, 
you know, and ends with bless her heart, which is no kind of blessing. Let me tell you hand over heart. I have howled at the hilarious sayings while secretly creating characters for a future novel. But growing up, I had no understanding of the power of words. They shape our worldview, tearing people down or building them up, dictating the tone of our lives and relationships. Words, both explicit and implicit, particularly when we are young and especially from those in close proximity, whom we value and admire, teach us our own value as well as what we should value. For example, if the direct and indirect judgment we often hear about the way a woman looks, we might take away that skinny women with little thighs, blonde hair, and tan skin are the only beautiful kind of women and spend a lifetime looking down on others or trying to live up to an impossible standard ourselves. This kind of truth is the dangerous kind because it's rooted in judgment and approval. It's giver decides what's pretty, who's smart, what's best. Usually he or she assumes little to no personal responsibility and fosters an environment that demands others absorb all the fault and accusation, change and fix themselves to fit in, or particularly potentially take care of everyone and make things right for everybody. It's not truth. It's pretending, pretending to be sweet, pretending not to be controlling, pretending to be perfect. All hail the know-it-all or the silent manipulator or the dominant abuser who decides what's best for everyone, including their worth, capability, and future. I grew smack, I grew up smack dab in the middle of this doctrine, and all I know is I learned how to hide all the ugly. I also learned to tell everybody else what they should and shouldn't do. I can't even say I did that well. I didn't even know what I should be doing half the time, much less what anybody else should do. In my wake were the people affected by my inability to live with integrity, to be forthcoming about my own life and story in response to another's honesty. When I loved, I loved well. And when I didn't, well, I didn't. I don't recall being nasty to others, but I had a habit of saying goodbye whenever someone got close to my truth without any input from the person on the other side. Bye, Felicia. Sometimes I ran because the relationship was dangerous in the first place. And when I realized it, I pulled out quickly. And sometimes a friendship was salvageable, but I didn't know how to tell the truth about the relationship and how it was affecting me. I didn't understand reciprocity, only giving and saving, or the shame that comes from owing. Real truth-telling requires intimacy and vulnerability. Knowing when to walk away and when to stay, what to share and when and how to share it requires maturity. Becoming a whole friend and healthy relationship is a ton of work. Getting honest is no picnic. Our deepest wounds come from relationships with others. Unfortunately, our growth and healing depend on our willingness to peel back the layers of comfort and security we hide behind in order to re-engage, trust again, and try again with others. This requires us to take off our mask and risk showing all the ugly to discover that we are worthy of love despite our past, our flaws, and our future. This requires us to get honest about who we are, where we are, who we want to be, and where we want to go, inviting others to live inside that gap with us and committing to stand in theirs as well. Truth-telling takes guts and gumption, grit and grace, and our world has never needed us to buck up Buttercup more than it does right now. This is the rise of the truth-teller. I was 18 when I left my hometown for college, and I was already a few degrees off the path I'd start, I started to pursue. Toward the end of my senior year, I started drinking and smoking weed, weary from people-pleasing and trying to live up to both my own standard of perfection and the standard I perceived from everyone else, I started to buckle under the pressure. I had secured an academic scholarship and would be leaving home for the first time. Eden, the town where I was raised, had just over 14,000 people. The college I was attending had 28,000 students. Academia was a strong suit, but I was used to small classrooms where teachers knew my name and often spent time encouraging me and helping me rise 
rise to my potential. When I showed up for my first chemistry class and there were 300 people sitting in stadium style seating, I freaked out. I smiled, made my way to the top row and figured I was going to fail. I was right, by the way. I sure did fail chemistry twice. Bless. And even my replacement grade the next semester was a low C. I didn't know how to flourish in that environment. Friends were pledging sororities and parties were easy to find along with alcohol and free weed if wanted. At the same time, my parents separated after 24 years of marriage, which really was the best choice they could have made. Still, I was away at school and my younger brother was at home. Things happened so fast that our house was sold by the time I made it back home for a visit. In less than a year, all the stability in my life had transitioned into an unknown future. I didn't know what to do. I had a few close friends on campus, but I still withheld how I was feeling, sharing information only and not allowing myself to be vulnerable or scared. I thought everyone expected me to be the strong one, so that's the role I played, which is unfortunate because it made me a terrible friend. I'm sure people thought that nothing was ever wrong with me, and honestly, who wants to be friends with a person like that? It was unfair and one-sided, but at the time, it was the only kind of friendship I knew how to have. My inability to take off my mask and engage in reciprocal friendship cost me. My existence outside of people pleasing and performing felt like a burden to others. The thought of sharing a hard truth about myself scared me into silence. I felt ashamed of my struggles and I hated feeling like a burden. Without the capacity to share my pain, I began to self-harm to relieve the internal pressure I experienced from not having many healthy outlets to tell the truth. I live in constant fear that if people really knew me, if they knew how much I needed them to help me, then they would leave me or reject me. To cope, I developed an eating disorder, bulimia. I remember the first time I made the decision to throw up. I was in the shower in my dorm. I grabbed my belly full of disdain and disgust. To tell you the truth, I don't even know where I learned to do this. I didn't read about it. I didn't watch anyone else. It's as if I had known how to do this all my life. Like I had been led right here, subtly and slowly over a lifetime to this moment when I turned all the things I could not control into rage against myself. Bulimia continued the cycle of shame and in turn left me feeling something more effective at numbing the pain. My coping arsenal grew to include smoking weed and drinking like a fish. It wasn't long before it expanded into ecstasy pills and partying nearly every night with friends. While I enjoyed the feeling of significance being the life of the party gave me, depression, anxiety, and heartache were the unwelcome companions joining me as I cried myself to sleep many nights. I had a King James version of the Bible from my childhood that I put under my pillow. The words didn't make sense to me at all. Hello, I don't read or speak Shakespeare, so I rarely read it, but I prayed somehow that God would get something good inside my head so I could quit hurting myself. Meanwhile, I was taking a full load of classes, keeping my GPA up for my scholarship, working part-time, and participating as an athlete on the crew team. At the end of that first year, I took a job as a resident assistant in my dorm, which provided free housing through the summer. I continued to avoid authentic relationships by setting myself up as a person others came to for advice or to share their problems. By the time they asked me how I was, I could only offer a general response. People felt close to me and often would call me one of their closest friends, but I didn't actually know how to be close. I knew how to meet needs, but couldn't share my own. I knew how to encourage dreams, but kept mine hidden. I knew how to give to others, but had no idea how to receive from them. There's nothing quite like feeling incredibly lonely, even though you're constantly surrounded by people. My hometown had successfully raised me to share everything and absolutely nothing at all. Things came to a head right before my second year of college. Our dorm hosted kids for athletic camps during the summer. The coaches were students from other universities who stayed all summer. 
in that mix was a guy I didn't know well, other than saying hello in the lobby and seeing him out at night, sometimes dancing with our crew. There was a nightclub next to campus that unfortunately turned a blind eye to underage drinking. Let me pause here and say this. Violence against women and sexual exploitation do not happen in isolation. They are endorsed and encouraged with community support. A nightclub that regularly hosts vulnerable, underage, drunk, girls, a college dorm full of adults who watch young women coming home wasted night after night without taking action, a neighbor who sees something but refuses to get involved in other people's business, a family member who suspects a violation but chooses denial or who hears a victim share but ignores or minimizes their story. These are all complicit. With the cycle of destruction I was caught up in, it was only a matter of time before something tragic happened. On opening weekend of my sophomore year of college, I was once again drunk and partying in my room with friends. I vaguely remember a crowd of people, then there were just a few of us, and the next thing I remember is opening my eyes and seeing my underwear on the floor. That image is still so vivid. It's what I stared at until he finished. I had been raped by the guy from the lobby I barely knew in my own dorm room. For the longest time, I thought I deserved it. We had danced together once or twice at the club. Maybe I'd asked for it, I blamed myself. If I hadn't been drinking, this never would have happened. But I've come to realize that a person who willfully preys on the vulnerable always, always makes the victim feel at fault for their crime. In the case of sexual assault, they don't just want to take a body. They want to take a voice. One in every five women is sexually assaulted while in college in America. Rape is the most underreported pr- crime in our country, and more than 90% of sexual assault victims on college campuses do not report the crime. I remember when a young woman came forward in our dorm about her sexual assault. Within six months, she transferred completely out of our school because rumors had spread that she was a slut and had made a sex tape. A woman's reputation is nearly always tarnished when she comes forward, which is why so many of us do not. It doesn't feel worth it to tell our story, to suffer more emotional duress, only to have our predator walk away as if nothing had happened. The next morning, I traded my early shift with a coworker and then went back to sleep. And I woke up later that afternoon, and I went to work, as if nothing had happened. I wouldn't talk about that night for another two and a half years. I chilled out on drugs and drank less, but my struggle with bulimia increased. My motivation began to dwindle. I slept all the time. Skipping classes and losing focus became the norm. I retreated from my friends, blaming my busy schedule of work, school, and crew practice. I was living through my days, but mentally, I was not present. For the life of me, I cannot remember a single teacher's name from my college years. I remember moments and conversations, but I do not recall their names. And not even once did a professor ask how I was doing or check in on me other than the dean of my program once to remind me to pull up my grades or lose my scholarship. They had high expectations for a student with a full ride, and I better not waste it. Of course he was right to do so, though I wish I'd done, he'd done more to try to understand why my grades were slipping. I am also confident that if he had taken the time to try to see what was happening right in front of him, I probably would have lied, smiled, and told him I'd work harder and do better. When I finally decided I needed help, the only thing I could afford was a counselor on campus. Lucky for me, her sister had struggled with an eating disorder and she specialized in that field. We were able to talk through my triggers and a few minor things as well, but I couldn't bring myself to tell her what had happened to me, specifically the rape. After several sessions, she was at a loss for what to do and suggested I see a psychiatrist. He spent almost 30 minutes with me and without hearing my story, diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as borderline personality disorder, then swiftly prescribed Prozac and another antidepressant that I've since forgotten and told me to come back and see him in a month. 
I thought he was out of his mind, using all kinds of big, fancy doctor words to scare me and take my money, so I never went back to either therapist again. My skepticism served me well in this case because I needed safe space to get honest and friendships to help me grow rather than prescription drugs. For the record, I do believe in modern medicine, and sometimes we do need a prescription to help us stabilize, to heal us alongside our recovery. The psychiatrist was wrong about the personality disorder, but he was right about the PTSD. A dark hole of shame was swallowing me up. I didn't understand why I couldn't recover and move on. I thought something was seriously wrong with me, and because I assumed the rape was my fault, the shame was compounded. It pressed me further into hiding, and the only way I knew how to break the silence was to binge and purge. It felt like the only emotional release in my life. Before the end of that school year, I started dating a friend. He didn't like drugs or alcohol, so I quit them, except on special occasions. My grades remained subpar, and I decided double workouts and hitting the water by 5.30 a.m. were too much for my mental state, so I quit crew. I worked more hours at my waitressing job, made good money, and felt I was doing all right for myself. After making it through the summer, incident-free, I thought my life was moving in the right direction. Mentally and emotionally, I was growing stronger, but at the start of my junior year, I just couldn't hack it academically. In danger of losing my scholarship, I figured the best thing to do was give it up. Sitting in the office of the Dean of Admissions, I wanted so badly to tell him that I wasn't a failure, that there were other circumstances hindering me from achieving my goal of finishing school. Inside, I was pleading for help, but I couldn't form the words with my lips. My legs felt like cement as I walked away from his office. You know that slow motion effect that happens in movies, where the crowd around the character blurs and there's no real sound except for an empty ringing? That's what happened to me. I stayed in my dorm the rest of the afternoon, not talking, not doing, just lying on my bed, staring at my ceiling. I felt gutted, numb, and overwhelmed by the thought of telling my mom, my friends, and my family that I had failed. Sometimes to relieve stress, I would buy a pack of menthols and just drive. But later that night, I bought a coffee and drove to an empty parking lot. The sky opened up, sharing my sorrow, dumping sheets of rain. I wrote furiously in my journal as I sat there sobbing, and then I started to scream at God, where are you? Where are you? When I had emptied myself of fury, I allowed myself to admit what I had not yet had the courage to say. My life is completely out of control. I need help. Just saying it out loud broke the hold silence had on me. It felt like a river ran through me, cleansing me, warming the cold parts of me, giving myself space to be out of control and honest for once about my need gave me a taste of freedom. I wanted more. In this moment, the mask came off for the first time as I expressed my emotions without any brokering and allowed myself to be right where I was without measuring against the past or bowing to the impossible expectation to be perfect. In the days and weeks to come, I started to try to dream again, to consider what might be possible beyond the pit of my problems. My experience with faith began in a small Southern Baptist church, a gathering of down-home good people that had potlucks and a library in the basement by the fellowship hall. My great-great-aunt Ferry started taking me to church when I was just a baby. In 1988, as a seven-year-old, I walked down the aisle during the old hymn, I Surrender All, and told our pastor, Mr. Freeman, that I wanted to follow Jesus. Then I stood and shook all 70 hands of the congregates who welcomed me into the Christian faith. In a white dress, I was baptized in front of my family and faith community. In the children's ministry, my teachers taught me Bible stories, showed me how to pray for missionaries, and helped me experience the love of Jesus. I served with Aunt Fairy, picking and arranging flowers for the altar from her massive garden, opening the church doors, and watching her help people choose books from the library. 
However, at 16, I left the church, unsure of my place as one of the only teenagers there, and I struggled to connect my questions, fears, and insecurities to my faith in Christ. I didn't go back again until I was 21. That moment in the parking lot not only broke the shame of silence, but opened my heart to God. He is never afraid of our circumstances. He doesn't leave us alone in our mistakes and failures. He doesn't avoid us until we get our act together. He is present in our pain. He loves us always, no matter what we do. Accepting myself as I was began to reset my trajectory. My heart craved a new beginning. I made the decision to continue my studies in Los Angeles, hoping to start over, to leave it all behind without any connection to my past. I left schools and my job as a resident assistant and a waitress, moved home and started working at that steakhouse in Reedsville with the plan in place to move 3,000 miles away. After discovering my pregnancy that night at the Texaco station, I sat in my car, stunned. The weight of reality and the pain of what felt like another failure overwhelmed me. And while I don't remember much about my mental state, I know I didn't allow myself to feel much of anything. My coping mechanisms were hiding and fixing, so I got to fixing as quickly as possible. I called an abortion clinic and made an appointment for the next day sometime in January. The details are still fuzzy. With a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you today where the office was, but I know the appointment was sometime in the mid-morning. I distinctly remember the rectangle shape of the room we were herded into, office chairs lining three walls with a dozen other women forced to face each other, and a thick, old television hung on the wall, dusty and gray. Objects remain in my memory, but not faces, and this is the burden of trauma, of disassociation, the need to focus on details that matter less and deny, bury, or endure those that matter most. I can't remember if the aide was tall or short, if her skin was light or dark, if she had a soft voice or not, if she was kind or clinical, but she turned on an informational video to tell us how we'd feel before, during, and after abortion. I honed in on the small cup she'd given each of us. It had a blue pill in it, Valium. My stomach turned. I left the room distraught. A life. A baby boy or girl was inside of me. How could I go through with this? My hands were shaking. My chest tightened. I was absolutely devastated. The same aide found me and led me into one of the offices where I sat for a few minutes feeling faint. The light from the windows in the office blurred her face in my memory, but I do recall her asking me how I was doing and offering me another Valium. After a few more minutes alone, I needed help to walk to the next room where I decided to go through with the abortion. I can only recall my time in the actual procedure in snapshots. My knees, my chest, my feet in stirrups, a hand, the doctor's glasses, a shadow on each side of me assisting the doctor. In the recovery room, I sat in one of what looked like a row of dental chairs with the same women I had watched the video with. It looked more like a Red Cross center than an abortion clinic, but I had not given life. I had taken it. On the way home, the combination of muscle relaxers and laughing gas and anguish made me hysterical. Laughter left my lips, but tears poured down my face, and this only added to my sorrow and shame. That evening, when I could speak again, I told the father of my baby, I never want to speak about this again. Do you understand me? I never want to say another word about this. I rolled over into the fetal position, curled a blanket around me, and prayed I would never wake up. I turned 21 that February of 2002, and not even two weeks later drove across the country to Los Angeles to start a new life. My mom was with me, and we decided to drive straight to the ocean. Listening to the waves crashing helped me breathe. I closed my eyes to inhale the salty air, feeling its moisture on my skin, then exhaling. I stood staring at the beauty of the West Coast. With a knowing in my gut, I whispered, I'm home. 
Mom cried because she knew it too, and I felt peace wash over me. There by the waters of the Pacific Ocean, I felt as though the expectations of others had lifted from me. The failure I had become, the mistakes I had made could be forgotten. I could leave it all behind, but I'd soon learn. Everywhere you go, there you are. A long road to recovery was ahead of me, but so were rich relationships, marriage and babies, inspiring faith, opportunities to use my voice and make a difference, and the determination to discover what I was born to do and do it. The world is hungry for people to own their stories and to create safe spaces for others to do the same. We need a release from shame, freedom from fear, and courage to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. It's taken me 15 years to become a person I love. The pain of continuing has made me want to quit more times than I can count. I've wanted to run fast toward my internal cave of pain while my face smiled and lied and hid. It's been painful to live honestly, to tell the truth, and learn to do so with grace and love and without being derogatory, condescending, or judgmental. I still fail at this often, but I am aware of myself. I can say sorry, and I can walk away from circumstances and people that make me play the game. Truth-telling starts with me. I don't want to spend another moment pretending and performing. I don't know about you, but I've spent so many years getting rid of my mask that I can't bear to ever wear it again. I'm too old and too annoyed. Ain't nobody got time for that. Besides, I've got a raging, colorful past, and now that I can admit it, who am I to judge? I've stepped out of hiding, and it's scary out here, but I've discovered I'm not alone. There's a generous portion of good, imperfect people living on the edge, truth-telling with confidence, and unabashedly loving themselves, God, and others. Living vulnerably, without all my weapons and walls, defense mechanisms, and superwoman tendencies has made me easier to know. Alongside other powerful women and men who are chasing love and truth relentlessly, I'm still shedding some of the skin I'm in, but I've learned not to mind the process of becoming. Friend, Hang in there. Your story matters. And whatever chapter you're living, remember that you are not alone. You have sisters and brothers in your corner all over the world who are fighting the good fight and overcoming impossible odds. You're not finished. This is not the end of the story. So keep on keeping on. You are loved. There's nobody else who can do what you were created to do. You are unique, one of a kind, and God is with you and for you. And please know I'm in this with you. Thank you for taking a chance on me. It's no small thing to give me your time. And I promise to give my best to serve you, to care for you, and to journey with you as you process your life and your faith. My prayer for our time together is that you would laugh out loud and know that you are not alone in your crazy because we're all a bit north of crazy given the right conditions anyway, that you would own your story, that you would create a safe space for others to do the same, that you would rise from the ashes of your past and take hold of the glorious future you are promised, that you would rise as a truth teller, a difference maker, and boldly without apology, release others to do the same. Rise, truth teller. Your story matters. Violence against women and sexual exploitation do not happen in isolation. They are endorsed and encouraged with community support. In the case of sexual assault, they don't just want to take a body. They want to take a voice. Truth-telling starts with you. Tell the truth. When's the last time a story impacted your life? What do you think of the phrase, my story matters? Did anything in my story resonate with you? Hiding and pretending in a relationship makes things complicated. What's been your experience with that in the relationships you've been involved in? How has it affected you? What is the importance of a truth teller in our world? Do you know any truth tellers? How have they impacted your life? How does your story and the concept of truth telling intersect with your faith? And that's the end of chapter one, friends.
And I am so excited to put this whole book in your hands. <laughs> oh, and it needs to be in every hand. I just have to say, I know for so many listeners, and including myself, I'm just mm-hmm. wiping tears from my eyes. And I just, if God can do that in Ashley's life, listener, I believe, and I know she believes, she literally wrote a book about it, yeah. that he can do it in yours. <laughs> In this, uh, it was it was towards the beginning of the chapter. This idea that you, if you were your honest self, you would be a burden. Hmm. That people couldn't handle your truth, and I think, um, just I I just, oh, it just broke me. Hmm. It broke me that that idea was deep in your bones and in your thought processes. That if you were your true self, and how you really rose above that to be vulnerable and. Yeah. And when we think of truth tellers in the context of perhaps social justice, we're like, people need to rise up and say, what's up? Yeah. But I think before we do all of that, as you pointed out so perfectly and so eloquently, that we need to be honest with ourselves. Yes. And we need to be able to look at ourselves and say, I am broken yeah. and I need help. And the vulnerability that you had with that and your hunger for reciprocity, even though you didn't know where to turn and thinking about you sitting in that dean's office. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I was doubled over listening to that of just thinking mm. there's this person in front of you and they didn't just the things that were going through your head and the losses. And um, it just as a reminder, friends, there's people all around us. We have no idea what battles they're facing. Yeah. May we always go first, telling the truth, inviting yes. them to share their truth. And Ashley finished with this so well, but it's such a beautiful crescendo. But to be in safe places with safe people and yes. become a safe person, uh, it just was so powerful. And one last thing I know, we're going long here, but just... Um, how you describe that context of compromise mm. where these things happen. And so how beautiful that Ashley's sharing her story with us, but she's also giving us such um, not just clues, but really understanding of how society at large is working yes. and, um, to harm women and yes. especially a woman that was in her situation. And there, there is millions of them. She is not this outlier. She no. is among millions who have been harmed in this insidious manner and so i just um and i know listeners a lot of you you might have been like whoa today what just happened here (laughs) and um i pray that that you're never the same after you heard ashley's story and and i've told ashley this privately i've told her um publicly on a stage and i say it to you listeners now um, if you need proof that God is good and near to the brokenhearted, this woman's story just reminds me that God is not covering his ears, ignoring yeah. his people. He is not uh, turning the blind eye to the brokenhearted, but he draws an ear to the brokenhearted. He is in the shadows awaiting uh, and ready to, to help and to heal. Yes. So um, I encourage you in the show notes today, we are going to have the pre-order link. And you know what? I want to just encourage you to obviously buy a copy for yourself. But Mm -hmm. would you buy two? Because Mm -hmm. I know as you listened to this episode today, you thought of a friend who you were already going to send this episode to. You thought of somebody who needed to hear Ashley's story. So would you... In generosity, order a copy for yourself and order a copy for that friend. I, mm-hmm. I, we are going to share this message. We are going to help get it out, listeners. We are going to be her army to help encourage men and women to rise and tell the truth. So would you do that for us? Ashley, do you have any last words? I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Tiffany, for your kindness. And thank you, listener, for sharing this safe space with me. It's an honor to share my story with you. Oh, we are, we are truly the ones honored listeners. 
you have gotten such a, I mean, I called it a snack. That was like, <laughs> woo, that was the million dollar snack right there. And uh, we will most certainly see you next week. Again, check those show notes. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, listeners, remember to subscribe and comment. It helps others to find the show. To learn more about Tiffany's writing, speaking, or books, visit TiffanyBloom.com. To learn more about Ashley's writing, speaking, or books, visit AshAbercrombie.org. See you next week.